Hey, Emily. Hey, Greg. Realize this is a hockey podcast. Realize people want us to give you the latest hockey news. Realize we have two great hockey guests in Brendan Dillon and Marissa and Jemmy. But, come on. Rob Gronkowski's going to Tampa Bay to play with Tom Brady. <laughs> How is that not the most all can, you know, granted, the Jordan documentary, which we'll talk about later, was the biggest sports story of the week, but now it's been superseded by the reunion of Brady and Gronk in Tampa Bay. Tom, sorry, Tampa Bay. I, okay, firstly, anytime someone says Tampa Bay, I think of like an extra flow tampon. I think Sarah Spain tweeted that and I haven't gotten that out of my mind. Secondly, it honestly hasn't even sunk in because A, it feels inevitable, but B, everything is so surreal these days that you can tell me that president like kim jong-un is potentially brain dead and that doesn't even register on our you know everything is surreal it's a blip so, on yeah. the radar like it's, it's, it's something on the, it's on the crawl yeah yeah exactly <laughs> it's insane uh yeah drew rosenhaus says rob has agreed to play for tampa this season he will honor his current contract at this time he has taken his physical a seventh and a, uh, a, a gronk and a seventh for a fourth rounder is a trade isn't aren't trades in the nfl stupid like compared, compared to, and in hockey, it's always like first round picks for big name players and all kinds of stuff like that. And then, you know, when you get to the football, it's like every single time, it's such a sort of salary spot driven sport that every single time there's a trade, you're like, oh, this is the single most famous football. It's like JJ Watt gets traded for like a, a fourth. Like it, it's, so- it's, it never makes any sense to me, NFL trades. The only reason it's like that is because salaries aren't guaranteed. Um, that's the way they can justify it. But yeah, it is wild. And look, I don't think JJ Watt's going for a fourth, but now you look at the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, they have to get rid of OJ Howard. I bet he goes for a fourth, which is insane. Yeah. You're a Jets fan. You'd take him for a fourth. You'd take him for a first, probably. I would, I would take him. I would, does he have a pulse? Can he catch a football? Yes, yes. <laughs> yes, yes to both of those. Does he you mind if the pass, does he mind if the pass is significantly farther away from where it should be? Cause. No, no, no. He could be a Chicago Bear if that's the case. Okay, very good. All right, coming up on this hockey podcast, like we mentioned, Brendan Dillon of the Washington Capitals, formerly of the San Jose Sharks, join us for a great conversation about um, his weird year, man. Ten games with the Capitals before the the season shut down. And uh, just a delightful guy. You'll very much enjoy that. Marissa's going to come on to talk about the NWHL, the Bruins, and also her unfortunate um, layoff from the uh, Boston Herald. And uh, what life is like for someone who is uh, grinding as a freelancer, as a very young writer. Uh, all that and much more on this edition of ESPN on Ice, a hockey podcast, I swear to you. Uh, so let's start the show proper, shall we? From the ice to your earbuds, a podcast about hockey, featuring things to do with hockey. From your friends at ESPN, it's ESPN on Ice with Wachinski and Kaplan. It's ESPN on Ice, the podcast where ESPN talks about hockey. I'm Greg Wyshynski, senior NHL writer. I'm Emily Kaplan, national NHL reporter. We begin this episode as we do with the season paused. It's your news and notes from quarantine. Um, games without fans, Emily. It seems like there is more discussion within the league that there's going to be a potential restart this summer. Uh, um, with different uh, locales hosting games on a neutral site basis. Um, Obviously, none of those places would have fans. We we discussed North Dakota on a recent episode, but there was some movement last week for New Hampshire as a potential site for NHL hockey. 
Yeah, and that noise was created by New Hampshire's governor, who created the noise himself. Uh, in an interview with WEEI, he pretty much said, yep, it's on the table. We are in the running. I've talked to the NHL, and that's all that I can say. Uh, now, you and I talked to Donald Fair of the NHLPA this weekend, um, and really does feel like they are in early stages because he says the NHLPA hasn't even been contacted about any specific neutral site location at this time. Um, If we just could scale back for a second, though, because I just want to lay out the landscape of as I see it. I went into this saying it is going to be impossible. I am so skeptical. There is no way they can stage games this summer. Like, I cannot believe it. But it really does feel that the NHL is so hell-bent on having it happen that it could happen. And they're definitely getting encouragement from President Trump to restart the economy and do something like this. I do see a couple of roadblocks, though. One being Canada. Yes, the U.S. government might allow it, but I think the Canadian government is a little more hesitant to want to give the green light, open up their border, allow games to happen there or travel between the two countries. Two is Europe. And, you know, we mentioned it with Donald Fair. He said, yes, we have all the resources. We have lawyers. The NHL has lawyers. We will get these guys over here. Firstly, Donald Trump is now talking about not allowing any new work visas. So all these guys who are UFAs on July 1st, like, how's that going to work? Are they going to get a new work visa? That's going to be a headache. And two, there's countries like Russia where the border is completely closed and nobody's going in and out of there, even on private planes. That has to be addressed. It does. And and again, I think the big issue is that even if you do address it, even if it's like, you know, the president saying sports have to restart for the betterment of of the economy and for the betterment of people's health, mental health, whatever. um, The last thing that pro sports wants to do is look like they're getting preferential treatment. I mean, remember that there was like an actress who got a COVID-19 test at one point in the back of a car from her doctor. And then it was like, I mean, it was people grabbing torches. You know, nobody should be uh, seen to be getting preferential treatment over anybody else during this pandemic. And the idea that, you know, oh, we'll allow private planes of Swedish hockey players to return to the country when no one else can fly anywhere is nuts. And it's going to make the NHL look horrible. And I think they're aware of this. So like we talked about before, you know, travel restrictions, restrictions on mass gatherings and, and, um, you know, essential businesses. These are all the things that have to be sorted out before we get there. But I'm with you. I mean, if you were going to put your finger in the air and say which way the wind is blowing right now, you'd have to say it's blowing towards the season restart with empty arenas in, you know, different locations. And and I think that might, maybe it's just a game of, of telephone. Maybe it's an echo chamber. But the more people you talk to, the more there is that sense of, I mean, optimism is a strong word for restarting a season in an empty arena. But optimism maybe that something's going to occur where we can get some finality on this season in some way, shape, or form. Now, no fans in those buildings. If the fans do come back, that's going to be an interesting interesting debate because you know, we, we talked about the Carolina Hurricanes modeling out what it would look like if you had the cap attendance at a certain number for social distancing purposes. You don't have 17,000 in the arena. Maybe you have six or 8,000 in the arena. Ted Leonsis last week in a chat with the Economic Club of Washington, D.C., addressed the idea of not wanting to do that, not wanting to have it be a situation where you have a certain class of fan, whether it's somebody who can afford it, whether it's somebody who gets in under the wire before the tickets are sold out, whether it's somebody who has a normal temperature versus a fever is able to get into the arena. He kind of didn't necessarily seem like he was a big fan of, of this idea of, you know, creating groups once we reopen that can get in and some that can't get in. 
Um, I think he sees sports as a communal thing for the community to kind of rally around. And the idea that certain people could get access and certain people can't is kind of an issue for him. And I think, you know, as we talk about this new normal, I mean, um, I hate that term. I don't know why I just said it, but as we talk the about the new pandemic, normal with Greg Wyshynski, <laughs> I hate it because it's not the new normal. I mean, it, in five years, we're going to be looking back at this and say it is not. This was not normal, and it won't be like this in five years. I mean, we all know that to be a fact. I mean, it might be worse. It could be better. Who knows? But it's not going to be. This is not the new normal. Okay, but that's why I hate that's, the term. You're saying but, that phrase a lot for. for I know. Eight. Well, I'm hoping somebody plays the new normal drinking game. Here's the thing. <laughs> When we reopen, it may, it, it's going to be masks. It's going to be, you know, maybe some sections are open, maybe some sections aren't. It, it could very well be, you know, instant on-demand temperature checks of fans as they walk into the building. I mean, there are going to be certain conditions that are going to be met, I think, when any place that has mass gatherings opens um, for business. And, you know, Leonsis, I agree with him. In a perfect world, I wouldn't want it to be a situation where we limit attendance and have to talk about, you know, hey, you've got a fever, you can't come in, the whole thing. But I mean, it's start, it's stuff we definitely are going to have to address before we reopen local arenas. Totally. As of this now, you want to put on a money line of what's going to happen? Should we, should we guess? Yeah, I would, I, if I was going to make, if I were a betting man, mm. if you were to appear on the daily wager regularly. <laughs> If I've been obsessively watching horse racing on Saturdays in absence of all sports, um, I I think they come back, and I think they come back at the end of July. That's that would be my wager. If I, you were telling me when and where, I would say open up some semblance of a training camp July first, and then you come back with an ex, with an expanded playoff end of July. I refuse refuse to believe that we're going to get any regular season games. The logistics of it are uh-uh. insane. And and to what end? To what end? What 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 are these teams making money if they're they're not playing in their home arenas and if they were playing in their home arenas nobody's in them buying anything and also all the businesses around the arenas are closed. So unfortunately you're going to have to say, you know, pack your knives and go home to a number of teams that are so far out of the playoffs and then you expand the playoffs to you know 20 if you want to go 24 to make sure the blackhawks and canadians get in okay whatever um and then go from there i just can't imagine the regular season is going to get played but i would say emily end of july what say you um firstly i would like to say if people are packing their knives and go home is there going to be a last chance kitchen is there a (laughs) counter programming (laughs) tournament where one team can emerge that would be great television steve mayor i hope you're listening to this see that's that's that stupid draft idea that's that stupid draft idea but better is to give the loser bracket a chance to return to the stanley cup tournament Yes, you get to come in to the quarterfinals. You, you skip the first round, you come right in, you get to play the Boston Bruins uh, because they've obviously beat the Toronto Maple Leafs in the first Top round. Top chef saving. Uh, but my guess um, in my new normal drink um, is that <laughs> it's just not happening. Uh, oh. I can't, I, 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 as much as I, I really do hear the NHL and I see them trying to figure it out, listening to these governors this week talk about opening up essential businesses like hair design studios and bowling alleys. And they've got a couple of thoughts about that. Um, I just don't think our country is prepared for this. I think we're going to get the second wave. And I just think the 2019-20 season is going to be a wash. Now, you're talking real governors, not like Vinny Viola, right? Like you're talking governors no, no, of no, no, states. No, I'm talking U.S. state governors. Go- gotcha. Governors. Okay. governors. Last, thing, last thing before we get to Brendan Dillon, um, I did find it very fun uh, to talk to Yarmo Kekalainen this week. 
Um, and also John Chaka for an interview that's appearing on ESPN on Wednesday. Uh, not sure when you're hearing this, but that's when you'll be able to read Chaka's comments. Both teams on the bubble, both teams battling math when it comes to the playoffs. And the idea that these teams are like ginning up models that they're sending to the NHL of, well, here's a way we could restart the season. Um, I love that. I love the fact that the Columbus Blue Jackets, who, if you go by points they're in, if you go by points percentage they're not, are sitting around crunching numbers being like, how about this? <laughs> how about every team with three names can have a chance to win the cup? <laughs> it's it's great to me. Um, also great to me, uh, the chance for us to talk to Brendan Dillon of the Capitals about a great many things. Uh, do enjoy. And now joining us on the line is Washington Capitals defenseman as of 10 games this season, longtime <laughs> San Jose Shark, Brendan Dillon. Brendan, firstly, where are you right now, and how would you describe the last couple of weeks of your life? Yeah, I, um, I'm actually back in San Jose, California at uh, my condo here. Um, I was shacked up in at the residence in Marriott Arlington for, for yeah, as you said, for, for 10 games. I think it was just around three weeks, and um, you know, you could almost consider myself part of a geography major now with, with the amount of traveling I've done over the last, uh, last couple weeks, months, but, um, happy and safe and yeah, yeah, just trying to, trying to make the most of this time. Um, we're both in the Bay Area. I'm over in Campbell. Um, and so oh, like, were you shocked by how far ahead everything here was versus the rest of the country? Cause I keep telling people like the toilet paper started disappearing at the end of February. Um, it, it feels yeah. like the Bay Area is kind of a couple weeks ahead of, of a lot of parts of the country. Did you feel that going from D.C. back back uh, back west? I did. Um, a, a big thing when I did get traded to Washington is it's it's pretty pretty surreal when you're driving to the rink there, the White House, um, all <laughs> of you know everything going on there, and and then it's it kind of translates to the TV too um, when you only have. You know the fifteen twenty channels on there. You find yourself watching Fox or watching CNN a little bit more, and um, it's almost within I think it was a week or two of me getting traded was when things really started getting serious in Santa Clara County when they were starting to instill the the shelter in places, and, and that were talks of of the Sharks games were going to be pretty much no no fans or anything. And um, I remember when I when I got out east and guys were starting to ask me about it, how bad it was in the area, and I remember thinking it was. It was something that was being talked about, but it wasn't uh, what it, it obviously is now. And um, I think in, in being in my time out there, uh, things were definitely starting to get a little more serious. You're starting to see more masks. And um, I was fortunate to, when I when I flew back this way, um, <laughs> the, the amount of Lysol wipes being handed out on the plane, uh, the masks and gloves and whatnot, um, I, felt, I felt fairly safe on there. And and as you said, getting back to the Bay Area itself, uh, I, I feel like people have, have done their job and have taken this thing serious enough where, where it's hopefully on the on the better end of things, I hope. You mentioned you're only with the Capitals for three weeks, but what were those three weeks like? What, you know, coming from an outsider, um, what impressed you about the team? What surprised you? And then I'm just curious about what it's like now. Like, are you included on their group text? Is it weird <laughs> if you chime in? Like, you're like, oh, I'm not kind of part of these inside jokes. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh it was it was definitely a crazy time. Um this season in general hockey season wise and um being someone who was traded mid season right at the deadline, uh I I consider myself lucky to, to go to a team like Washington. Uh not just because 
of the, of the team being in first place and the opportunity to win a Stanley Cup, but um, just the guys on the team, the culture that they've created there. And when you get to meet the Alex Ovechkins and the Tom Wilsons and Nick Backstroms and these guys that have had, you know, so much success over the last, you know, last however many years, um, you see how much fun they have around the rink. But once it comes time to, to get into games, uh, they don't mess around. And, and I think that's kind of an infectious thing, whether you're a young guy coming in or a free agent that's just signed or gotten traded. Um, they, they know how to do it right. And I felt super, super part of the group. Uh, I felt like a piece to the puzzle that was, was going to help us get better. And um, it's, it's very unfortunate with everything that's going on now that we can't continue to play, play hockey and, and continue on that quest for like a lot of teams that had, had higher hopes for the season. But um, yeah, they've, I'm still in the group chats. I've actually been, <laughs> I was recently purchased an Xbox uh, about a week or so ago. And uh, me, Tommy Wilson and TJ Oshie have been having uh, some tea times to, to kind of get ourselves away from the craziness. <laughs> um, that's fascinating. You, you, I mean, you, you played so long with one Hall of Famer in Jumbo. I was wondering if you've gotten a sense of Ovi yet and, and if anything about him away from the ice has sort of opened your eyes versus what your conceptions might have been. Yeah, well, those are, it doesn't matter how many games you've played. I think when you meet, you know, Joe Thornton or you meet an Alex Ovechkin for the first time, there's, there's a bit of nerves. And I mean, we're talking about some of the greatest players of all time to, to play the game. I mean, even as a kid, a kid playing juniors, I mean, I was watching the highlight reels of Ovi, the highlight reels of Jumbo and, um, very fortunate enough to, to play with Jumbo for six years and see the, the work he puts in to get himself to, to the level he's at. I mean, it's no, no surprise or, or fluke that he's, he's had so much success and got so many assists and playoffs and gold medals and these types of things. And, um, I think for, for him, I think that's the one thing that goes maybe. I don't know so much unnoticed by his teammates, but but maybe by by people on the outside looking in. Is this guy? He's in there on Christmas Day riding the bike. He's bringing his kids in before or after practice. And um, I think for Ovi, the thing is too is he's he's a leader. He's a guy that it's in the room. He he's playing the right way. Um, you know, in Washington, they like to play you know that skilled game, but physicality is a big thing they they embrace there. And um, he's a guy that. When you when you talk about goal scores, um, you know you could argue that he is the best goal scorer of all time. Um, super lucky to be part of his 700th goal game there in New Jersey and um, seeing the things. But he's he's a gamer. He's a guy that wants to win. Um, I think he he proved a lot of people wrong winning the Stanley Cup and, and not just winning it, but being a big part of this team for for so many years. Hmm. Brendan, I have to ask you: You're 29 years old, and this summer you're supposed to become a UFA. And so much of the world is unknown right now, and so much of the hockey world is unknown right now. We don't even know if we can finish the season. But one thing we do know is the salary cap is probably not going to rise next year like we thought it was going to. Uh, have you thought at all about how this summer might be a little bit different than you imagined and what impact that could have on you? Well, yeah, Emily. I mean, it's 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 something that I think for a lot of free agency, you know, I've seen some few things like Petrangelo has been interviewed over the last couple of weeks or um, you know, the other big names like Taylor Hall or Tory Krug and, and these guys that, um, you know, in a normal, a normal year, a normal salary cap, um, you'd have to think that things would go as per schedule, uh, whether they'd resign with their teams before July 1st or, or in that short, short window after. But, um, there's, we don't even really know when, when that period's going to start. Uh, we don't even know if our seasons are over with yet. Um, there's just so many, what ifs and unknowns that that I think that's 
as much as it's a big deal to a lot of us that are free agents, um, that's that's kind of almost the last thing when it comes down to it. I mean, there's there's always dates between the draft um, to when we could be playing playoffs if we're going to be finishing the regular season. And um, for for a guy like myself who's who's in a new situation, still getting to know you know a lot of his his teammates. I mean, it was funny sharing sharing a hotel with, with Ilya Kovalchuk for those couple of weeks. I mean, a lot of us were, well, for me and him both coming from the West Coast to the East Coast, um, you know, we talked a little bit about his time in Montreal and, you know, how much he enjoyed it. And for me, coming from a team where I was for, for a long period of time, um, there's just, uh, you know, you don't know how things are going to shake out over the next couple of weeks. So um, just, again, trying to stay as best as we can in shape and hopeful that we can get this thing planned again. Yeah, you mentioned. I mean, you know, your, your whole year for you has been such. I mean, probably whiplash for how many <laughs> things have happened in this past year between what happened in San yeah. Jose to the trade to the Capitals, and now the season shutting down. Um, what we've been asking a lot of players this uh, in our conversations in the last few weeks. What do you What do you want to see uh, if the season does get restarted this summer? That would make you feel like it's safe enough that your well being has been regarded enough that your loved ones have been considered enough um, to bring you guys back to the rink? That's a great question. That's, that's another one of, of kind of what we've been talking about on our NHLPA calls amongst mm-hmm. other players um, in our group chats with the guys. Um, you know, you're talking about some players that are 19-year-old single guys that are, you know, have just been gaming for the last couple of weeks and, and ready to go. And then you're also talking about some players in their, you know, mid to late 30s with three kids that they've kind of got to worry about schooling and having them up or whatever it might be. And with all these different variables, guys probably going to be having to, to travel back from Europe and probably go through a couple week quarantine after that. And um, there's just so many variables, which kind of seems to be the, the reoccurring theme of, of when we would be able to get these. I, I feel still at this time, a lot of the kind of those decisions are almost above, you know, the NHL or the NHLPA and are kind of even almost above, you know, kind of what uh, what the president or the prime minister are thinking. You know, this is talking about the center disease control and, and what they're feeling is best for, for countries, for the massive amounts of people that this thing has been affecting and, um, you know, I know those talks about, you know, a neutral site or, or somewhere where it maybe is um, a little bit of a less potential to get infected or, or, or different areas. And I think for a lot of players, we, we want to play. We're, we're competitive. We're guys that we've gone through the 65, 70 games of the injuries and uh, the, these types of things, the trades, whatever it might be, to, to just have a chance to play for a Stanley Cup. And I'm sure if you asked if it was up to us, we, we would do anything we could to, to make it work. As a follow-up, I, I remember you were an NHLPA rep, I think, for the Sharks um, and, and you know, being involved with the, the Players Association and stuff. What, what was sort of the nuance in, in deciding what to do with that last paycheck? A lot of the people that have been following the story from the outside look at this. We know there's a delay for a month in deciding what to do with it. Yeah. What are the broad strokes of, of that decision for, for the players to either you know, give away part of or all of or, or none of that last paycheck? Yeah, well, it's it's something again where where we as players understand that you know, we're not able to play right now. Uh, we also understand right now we we don't really under don't know when when our next game might be. Um, you know, if things are going to be starting on time, hopefully not affecting next year. 
and and I think that was was for us as players talking about what's going to be the the escrow impact, what's going to be the the fan base impact when we do come out of this thing. Our our family's going to feel safe coming to our games right out of the bat. Uh, are we going to be able to fill stadiums with with again the what what are all these different variables going to affect and. I think when it came to this last paycheck, um, we had been paid the, the previous one, which would have been, I guess, end of March, uh, yeah, end of March, early April. And, um, you know, we're, we're really trying to, to make things work with the owners when it comes to, we understand what's on the horizon with NUCBA, um, with, you know, Don and then Gary talking a lot. And it's, it's, there's just so many, so many different things that even, even on the NHL and NHLPA side, as I said, are, are unable to really be, be changed or, or really be, talked about when it comes to when we'll be resuming because we really don't know what's going to happen with this thing if we're on the better side of it if we're still going to get any worse so until then we're, we're really kind of in the dark Brennan if you got the email today uh NHL season's gonna resume I don't know what you've been doing if you've been rollerblading pelotoning using <laughs> hand weights that you bought at Walmart but how long do you think it yeah. would take for you to need to be back on the ice and back in the conditioning program to get in game shape and feel comfortable playing up there well, that's that's another million dollar question for a lot of us. Is how are the hammies? How are the groins going to feel? Um, how rusty are the first couple passes going to be? Uh, these are these are a lot of things that uh, I, I think a lot of us players, not just in hockey but in, in pro sports, are kind of in the same boat of trying to find gyms or, or, or acceptable workouts. Um, to, to keep us in shape, to keep us going. And I think hockey is one of those unique sports where it doesn't matter how hard you ride the bike, how many runs you do, sprints, whatever it might be. There's nothing like um, replicating an, an on-ice hockey practice or stride or game. And um, I've had the rollerblades have been ordered. Um, those things have been they've been they've been as close to a hockey stride as I guess I can get to for now. Um, I've been playing NHL on Xbox to try and make sure I'm keeping my hands nice and <laughs> nice and ready to go. And and again, I think it's going to be a couple week thing. I know there was a few few reports out there that it'd probably be at least a two to three week training program. I think that's the biggest thing is you don't want guys getting rushed back into the games and, you know, not being able to perform at their best. And uh, there's, there's going to be a few guys I'm sure that have done more over this, this last five, six weeks. And then a few guys that have probably done a little less and um, coaches are, I'm sure chomping at the bit to be yelling at us about something. So we're, we're, we'll be looking forward to it. <laughs> Last one from me, Brendan, and thanks for your time today, man. How did you get dragged in, into TikTok world? Yeah, well, um, <laughs> when you spend two to three weeks um, in a hotel, uh, for there's only so many puzzles and Netflix you can watch and do. Um, I don't want to throw any of the guys under the bus from uh, from the Capitals, but TikTok was something that was around pregame meals. Guys were scrolling through and checking them out, and I, like I said, I don't want to name any names, but... Um, by the end of it there, next thing I knew, I was, I'd, I'd be brushing my teeth in the morning and busting out something in front of the mirror. And, um, I must have to blame the old lady for that one, but, uh, she wrote me into, wrote me into that one and man, did that take off quick. And then I think it's probably going to have to be my last with the amount of chirps I took from the guys and that's back home. So, um, again, it was, it was a short lived, uh, dancing career, but I'll stick to hockey. All right, and this is my last one. I think fans are all curious of how you guys are biding your time. Has there been one night that you found yourself watching a show or reading a book and you're like, what the hell am I doing? Like, how did I land upon this? 
Yeah, well, I think for me, one of the big ones is, so since I've been back here in San Jose, I've been kind of organizing and packing up and doing some sort of housing stuff that, you know, whether that's painting or some sort of little mini reservations, sorry, renovations. And and the next thing I knew, I found um, a couple of Disney songs being blasted on my thing. And I think I had it going for at least an hour and I'm like singing along (laughs) to these little Frozen or like Aladdin or Lion King things. And I'm like, Oh boy, what have you gotten into? And again, I'm sure there's a lot of other worse or better things that, that people have gotten into, but um, I, I definitely had to change the channel and get my sanity back after that. Brendan, you know how to play to an audience for a Disney company, so we appreciate you. <laughs> I appreciate it, guys. Take care, man. Thanks so much for your time. Uh, best of luck through this, and we can't wait to see you back on the ice whenever that is. Thanks. Thanks, Emily. Thanks, Greg. Our thanks to Brendan Dillon of the Capitals, briefly, uh, for his time and talking about a great many things. Uh, Brendan's at home, as are many of us, probably tuning in, watching some TV. Millions upon millions tuned into The Last Dance, the Michael Jordan documentary, as we're calling it. It's really about the Chicago Bulls, but it's kind of, you know, mostly about Jordan. Uh, this week on ESPN, different parts will be airing each week, and it was, Nostalgia City. I mean, it was great. It was great to revisit those Bulls teams. It was great to re- revisit the 90s in many ways. It was good times. For me, look, it was incredible because as everyone knows, I live in Chicago, but I have not lived here long and I didn't live here then. And to see the city and what that team meant was really neat. Um, I also was born in the early 90s, so a lot of this is new to me because I wasn't consuming NBA games and pop culture then. So just the suits they were wearing, the music <laughs> they were listening to, that was awesome. Um, but yeah, it got us a lot talking about goat status. And uh, the stat popped up for me, and I just I had to tweet it uh, on Monday because I was just so shocked by it. But there's one scene in the documentary where Michael Wilbon is trying to explain Michael Jordan. And he's saying, like, he's on this Mount Rushmore with only, like, a few people, Muhammad Ali being one of them and Babe Ruth being the other. It is kind of wild that Wayne Gretzky isn't mentioned in this conversation. Because at the time that Wayne Gretzky had retired, which was 1999, 29 years ago, he owned or shared 61 NHL official records. Mm. 21 years have passed. He is still the owner of 60 NHL records. That is insane dominance. That's that's incredible. That's absolutely incredible. I I do wonder about that. I mean, in growing up, there were a few goats. You know, I think most people would say Muhammad Ali. I think a lot of people would say Pele for soccer growing up. Um, The NBA... I think changed because for a while it would probably be Wilt Chamberlain and then it became Jordan. And I do wonder what this documentary does to his goat status. It reaffirms it in an era where people look at Kobe and look at LeBron and start comparing what they did to what Jordan did and what he was football. uh, Greg, Greg, I don't know if you know this, but we do that every single day on first take. (laughs) That happens. Football, I mean, I don't know if there was an established GOAT for football. I mean, I guess it was Montana, and then it unfortunately became Brady, as I say that as a Jets fan. Um, But hockey, it was – I grew up in an era where Gordie Howe was surpassed by Gretzky. And it wasn't even a conversation to be had that Gretzky was the default setting 
greatest of all time in hockey. Um, now, what's happened that's interesting with Gretzky in that status, I think, is that the game has changed so remarkably since his era. I, there might not be another guy. I, I mean, and, and talking about the gameplay itself, not like the outside forces like, you know, integration of baseball, for example, but like the gameplay itself has changed mm-hmm. so dramatically in the, in the NHL that what Gretzky achieved during his career, I think through a certain modern filter gets diminished a little bit because people yes. know what goalies look like now and how they play defensive systems, the number of teams, the talent level overall in the league where you don't have a, you know, guys who can't skate on the fourth line anymore that just there to throw punches. Um, the game has changed so dramatically that I, I feel like his goat status has sort of changed with that. I agree that I feel like people are putting too many qualifiers on it. It's a different era. If he played now, there's no way he would have been that productive. And let's be honest, we have no way of telling that. We do know that he dominated in the constructs of the game that was of his time. And that's mm-hmm. all he could do. Now, what's really interesting is all, and the reason we're bringing Gretzky up, of course, is because he's been in the spotlight lately and he's been really vocal about Alex Ovechkin chasing <laughs> his record. They've developed this pretty adorable relationship where they're pretty effusive of each other and their praise. They met for dinner for the first time in Malibu a couple years ago. And now they did their first joint interview this Monday with Catherine Tappan on Wednesday. Again, I don't know when you're listening to this. They're going to be playing video games against each other on the Twitch channel. <laughs> Everyone should tune into that because I have no idea what it's going to look like. All that said, Gretzky says that when he was chasing Gordie Howe's record, Gordie Howe was on the road traveling and and going to be there to support him on in 1994. And he wants to do the exact same thing for Ovechkin. And now Ovechkin joined the 700 club this season. He's 188 games shy of Gretzky. Everyone believed it was inevitable. If Ovechkin maintains his career pace of 0.63 games, points per game, he'll catch him in 309 games. That's roughly four seasons. If he, you know, dips down to a half a goal per game, that's probably five seasons. Do you think the pandemic affects this? Do you think that all of a sudden we lose a half a season now? He's lost a couple seasons because of lockouts. And then maybe next season doesn't start on time. And maybe he didn't get his regular training regimen in. Is there any chance that this is what prevents him from from reaching him? I mean, it could. I mean, depending on what he comes back as next year. I mean, the interruption in training, I think, is going to affect a lot of people. And, uh, you know, I, I feel like Alex really has more of a handle on that now than he than he's ever had before as an older player. I'll interject and say, do. yeah, he's the only player that I know of that has this personal trainer living with him right now. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So in theory... He should be all right. It does suck that he's lost some games. It's not necessarily on the level of the games that Yamir Yager lost, for example, who I think would have assaulted a number of Gretzky records had it not been for lockouts and, and his uh, pilgrimage to Russia for a few years. Um, but I, I believe – I've long believed Ovechkin's going to break the record. I still think he will. Um, and I hope he does because I think it's be an, an incredible moment for the NHL if that happens. Uh, the bigger question, of course, is, you know, can he beat Wayne Gretzky in a video game on the Capitals Twitch channel on Wednesday night? And my favorite thing I've heard this week was from TJ Oshie, who was asked, uh, what's going to happen when they play a video game together? And Oshie said, are they doing the controllers? Are they playing against each other? Because I feel like Ovi plays more video games. So I'm going to give him the nod. Yeah, I think so too. I don't think Wayne Gretzky is sitting on his couch playing NHL 20 a lot. But he's got his 19-year-old son joining him. 
back. Is from he going to be a ringer though, or is is Dad going to play? That's the question. Mm. Is it going to be know. like one of these Obi- deals where Gretzky's on camera flipping buttons, but not actually playing because his son's next to him actually playing the game? The great thing would be, I think it's his son Tristan who's playing, but what if they get his other son actually under the couch? Like they have Tristan <laughs> there as the decoy, but it's actually right. the other son doing it. That's the question I have. And the other thing is Ovi says that he plays a lot of video games, but NHL's not really his game of choice. I think it's, you know, some other games. I don't yeah, know, he feels Fortnite like a, guy. FIFA, a FIFA guy more than anything oh, else. Okay. Maybe Call of Duty. Um, all right, Call we'll, we'll see Duty it feels real right. Dollars to Donuts right now, who's, the, who's hockey's goat? Is it still Gretzky? Oh, 100%. I the think guy best who owns 60 play- NHL records, that's my pick. And I think best player of all time and greatest player of all time, honestly, are two different discussions. I think Mario is the best player of all time. I think Gretzky could be the greatest player of all time in the totality of impact on the sport. But like, mm. if we're doing an all-time draft, everything being equal, everybody being healthy, I take Mario. But I think that you can't deny Gretzky's greatness I mean, it's in the nickname, um, when it comes to his, his impact on the sport. So I think he goes on the Mount Rushmore of greatest of all time, even if I think Mario's a better player. I like it. All right. Next guest. It's Marissa and Jemmy to talk about a great many things. And now joining us on the line is a great friend of the program. She is an incredible reporter. She covers women's hockey as well as anybody. She covered the Bruins for the Boston Herald. It's Marissa and Jemmy. And Marissa, um, you are 23 years old and you were killing it on the NHL beat. And obviously this pandemic has affected so many different industries, including journalism. Um, just tell our listeners a little bit about what happened to you and what you're up to now. Yeah, so when the pandemic started, I was in Buffalo for the Bruins, and then it became clear they weren't going to play their game. I went home and then was in quarantine. I'm on day 41 of quarantine now, where I haven't left my apartment building. And that was fine, because I was just writing about stuff. I was writing about the Bruins. I was working on stories about TD Garden employees, writing about the Boston Pride and the NWHL. And one morning, I was actually working on a figure skating story, because I was trying to get innovative and write about different topics and just kind of try to be invaluable to the company. And I woke up and had voicemails to call back and I called back and my position was eliminated, um, which isn't fun, especially during a pandemic because I can't just go and ask places to hire me now because they're all like, well, there's a pandemic, which makes a lot of sense. Um, So it's been weird not having a job after getting really comfortable on the beat and really enjoying it and loving the life. And, um, it's still tough to think about that's not what I am anymore, but I'm just trying to plug her away and write where I can for now. Yeah, I was going to say, how did you cope? I mean, did you, did, have you reached, I mean, obviously you're not the only writer to unfortunately get affected by this. Uh, have you reached out to other folks that, that are in the same, the same boat? Yeah, I've talked to a lot of people, people who got laid off at the Herald, sports writers at other publications, and it's tough for everyone. And, I feel fortunate to be in circumstances where I'm relatively okay. I can freelance. I can make some sort of an income. I'm eligible for unemployment. And right now that's huge because I'm, the timing's weird because I, I've freelanced before. I've never had a stable job until I worked at the Herald. I was freelancing over a hundred hours a week writing anywhere that wow. would take me for a while. So in some ways it isn't new. What is new is places that were automatic yeses in the past just don't have the budget. Um, after working at the Herald and working on a beat for a year and a half, I would have felt confident that I could approach some other places and they'd be interested in talking, and now they just can't. Um, so that's the tough part, and that's what's tough for everyone, is that people who are qualified, people who are good journalists can't find work because 
of where we're at. And the scary part is we don't know if or when any of those jobs are going to come back. But nonetheless, she persisted and you are freelance writing. <laughs> you're still reporting. Uh, and one of the issues that's come up is uh, the NWHL, which I don't know if our listeners haven't followed the NWHL. Marissa covers them so well that they oh, actually yeah. had her present, what was it, the MVP award at All-Star Game? Is that what you did? Yeah, the uh, All-Star Game in Boston. Yeah, um, which is incredible. But they have now, you know, maybe by the, even the time that you listen to this podcast, will have announced that they're going to expand into Toronto. Just what do you think that means for the league, and what was your reaction when you heard that? Yeah, I mean, it's good for them to expand, especially at a time where not many things are expanding at all. Um, this has been in the works for a little bit, and it kind of started to come together. To me, the most fascinating element of it is Gidget Murphy's involvement. She's going to be the president of the team. And she's someone who hasn't been very pro NWHL over the years. She was very involved in the CWHL, had her own Twitter rivalry with Danny Ryland, the NWHL commissioner. So to me, that's what stands out the most, because she can kind of be a bridge between the NWHL and then the people who vehemently do not support the NWHL. So I think it's a positive for the league overall. They're bringing in five players, four of which were in the PWHPA. Three of them were, or all of them, had been in the CWHL in the past. Um, so just the lack of animosity between several groups involved is a good sign for women's hockey. And expansion's always good. There's an even number of teams now having a Canadian presence where it's primarily been an American league. Um, overall, it's good news for the league and um, for their future. I know the league hates when we discuss the league in, in aggregate and not talk about like the games and the athletes, but... It's sort of an unavoidable topic, you know, when, when, it, when the NWHL is constantly in the news and, and constantly a point of controversy. And I was always wondering about you. I mean, you, you wrote very challenging stories um, and very important stories about women's hockey. And the battle lines are so drawn when it comes to the NWHL. What were your experiences like dealing with that fallout, especially on, say, social media, when you would report on women's hockey um, and, and maybe, you know, the story is going one way or another and, and the readers want you to go a different way. Yeah, it's a tough balance. I mean, like anything else, you don't want to annoy the people you're writing about because they're your sources. They're who are giving you stories. They're who you're talking to and you rely on them um, to continue to produce work, especially quality work and have access. Um, so it's always a tough balance, especially in something like women's hockey, where there is a notably large mob on social media ready to smack <laughs> you no matter what you say. Um, and people want to designate sides for you. So if you write something that's like, oh, the NWHL actually isn't the worst thing on the face of the earth, everyone will tell you you're pro-NWHL, whatever that means. And if you write, oh, I think that this thing the NWHL is doing is bad, it means you're pro-PWHPA or whatever. And what's tough there is when you accidentally draw a line in the sand like that, sometimes the people who are giving you access also buy in and believe that. So nah. it's a tough balance, especially in something um, – as niche and as tight as women's hockey is, I used to cover lacrosse like for a long time and it's very similar energy. So I feel like as soon as I started covering women's hockey a lot, I was kind of like, okay, well, I know how this works. Everyone's going to be mad at you all the time. Um, so you might as well just say the truth and say what people are telling you. I feel fortunate because I'm at games a lot. I, the Boston Pride play 15 minutes from where I live. I can walk down the street and go there whenever I want. So I've had a presence there. I've worked in the NWHL doing play-by-play. I covered them for ESPNW actually for a while. So I feel like I've been kind of lucky that my presence being around there has maybe made some people more lenient when I do have some more um, scathing stories here and there. But um, it's a very tough balance, and I know a lot of people who cover women's hockey have that trouble too. 
Marissa, you're officially, officially the first guest in ESPN on Heist history who has mentioned lacrosse energy. That is a first for us. <laughs> uh, I that's because John, John Tavares has never been on, I don't believe. So yes, he, yes, uh, yes, yes. We're, we're, we're waiting that lacrosse one. energy. Um, but I well, want to switch gears. <laughs> yeah, switch gears to the Bruins for a bit. You know, we've mentioned you're so young and you came on the beat and did a great job and you traveled so much. And, you know, usually when I talk to beat writers, um, especially ones that are just breaking in, they mention that there's usually one coach or one player um, that really made them feel comfortable. That maybe, you know, went above and beyond in explaining a play to them or, or being available. Was there anyone like that for you and the Bruins? Anyone who kind of just really embraced you? I got really, I got along really well with the young guys who are kind of around my age. Like Charlie McAvoy literally lived on my floor in college, and I'm not sure he even knows that or remembers that, but I kind of picked up on it because he, he mentioned the dorm he lived in, and I had to go back and listen to the audio, and I was like, oh, that's the exact floor I lived on. Okay. Um, so he was always nice to me because we could talk about BU and stuff. Uh, Jake DeBrusque was amazing. Um, one of my favorite memories, actually, like covering the team, they always had this um, holiday shopping thing at Walmart. Um, and I covered it, and not many other writers would go to it because it's kind of a promotional thing, but you can get the players in some different access. And I went there this year in November, and there were, like, security trying to keep um, fans away and stuff, but I'd be going up to players because they knew me and just, like, talking about, hey, what toys did you like as a kid? And I was talking to Jake DeBrusque, who was one of the best interviews on the team and one of the nicest guys ever. And, like, we were talking about Pokemon, and that's a story I never got to do, which I'm really annoyed about because I love Pokemon. And the security guy came up to me for, like, the third time, like, hey, stop harassing the players. You have to go. And he, like, stood up for me. And he's like, wait, no, she covers the team. And, like, I always just remember that. that like, he could have just, like, told me to leave him alone, too, but, like, wanted to talk and be nice. And, like, the security guard backed off after that for the rest of the day. So that kind of stands out. But those two guys specifically, DeBrusque and McAvoy, were great to me. Do you think – Emily and I did a, a rewatch of the uh, last episode of Quest for the Cup – uh, between the Blues and Bruins last postseason. Do you think the Bruins would have been back in, in the final or, or could be back in the final if we restart the season? Cause it kind of seemed like they were built that way. I, I, I don't know if there was the magic there as there was last season. And maybe you can, you can testify to that or not. But if, uh, if we completed the season, if we do complete the season, would it shock you to see the Bruins play for the cup again? It seemed like they were heading that way. I mean, the last game they played, they shut out Philly. They broke their nine-game winning streak. Tuka Rask was playing his best hockey ever. The last Bruins story I wrote before the pandemic was how Rask should be a Vesna candidate and was kind of getting overlooked a little bit. Um, the, um, David Pasternak was going to hit 50 goals. Bergeron was going to reach his career high in goals. Uh, they had so many guys playing so well. Marchand had an outside shot at getting 100 points again. Uh, Brandon Carlo was going to come back from injury. It looked like they really did have the pieces to make another run. And it's weird because, like, last year there was a point in, like, February when they were in Vegas where I was like, oh, this team has – they have that special magic feeling kind of of a team that can make a run for the Cup. And this year it kind of felt like they were the same group. They had the same just, like, mindset, not to, like, repeat the same word, but the same energy. Mm. The difference was what we were seeing at the end of last year was happening at the beginning of this year because they were already so cohesive. Uh, they already kind of had all that chemistry worked out even though they had a ton of injuries last year and a ton of injuries this year, it just seemed like everyone was well-prepared. So it seemed like they were um, on pace to make another run. And if hockey resumes again, it's tough to say where everyone's going to pick up at different points. I mean, Tampa would have Stamkos back, presumably uh, different things. There would be different factors, but it seemed like if things were going to continue the pace they were, they had a good shot. All right. Finally, we'd be remiss if we didn't ask you about the biggest sports story of the day. You're in Boston. 
Rob Gronkowski is going to Tampa Bay <laughs> to join Brady. <laughs> what, what is it? What? It, I mean, like the Brady things obviously been, been playing out in Boston for the last few weeks. I mean, you you add this on top of that. What is what does sports culture in Boston say at this point about that reunion? Is everybody turning in their new spiffy Patriots gear for uh, Tampa gear at this point? Everyone I know is a reasonable person and is like, well, the Patriots won a lot. So, like, yeah, now stuff's going to happen. Fine. I mean, that's how I feel about it. Like, I got to see them win a ton. I think it would be kind of funny to see them just be, like, pathetic for a while. I'm kind of looking forward to it. But uh, it's New England. There's going to be, like, reactions. I haven't seen any jersey burnings yet, but also it just happened. Such a WWE feel to, like, demand a trade to go play with your old teammate. But it's Gronk, so I guess it makes sense. Yeah, and he does have to give up the 24-7 title that he won at WrestleMania, I think, by virtue of returning to football. I think whoever, like, makes their first tackle on him should get the belt. (laughs) Perfect. I love it. (laughs) Marissa, thank you so much for joining us uh, on on, uh, ESPN and Ice and uh, continued uh, trudging along. You're you're a super talented writer. You wrote important, different stories, and uh, someone's going to value that, and you're going to be back in, in in a gig in no time. And Thank I have you. to I add so one much. more plug. Where can our listeners get the Marissa and Jemmy energy and follow your work? <laughs> <laughs> um, for now, I'm writing for the Metro West Daily News in Framingham, Massachusetts. So a lot of local stuff, some Bruin stuff here and there, some Pride stuff. And um, the Ice Garden at SB Nation for women's hockey. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. Thanks to Marissa for joining us on this uh, this podcast. And if you need a hockey writer, hire her. She's great. Uh, so now it's time move. for now it's time for a very different look at the media. It's our favorite segment of the week. Phil Kessel loves hot dogs. No, he does not love to eat hot dogs. Our weekly look at sad hyperbole and strange narratives of the hockey media. Good one, Randy. Good one. It's Phil Kessel loves hot dogs. We look at the hyperbole and missteps and mistakes of the hockey media. I will preface this by saying I like Rob Tukowski. I think we've had beers on the road. The Edmonton Sun. This is not my favorite take of his on Bill Peters, who was recently hired to be a head coach in the Continental Hockey League in Russia. Quote, it's good to see former Flames coach Bill Peters getting an opportunity to coach again in the KHL. It's the first step in getting his life back together after some pretty ugly mistakes earlier in his career. Everyone deserves a second chance to prove that sometimes good people do bad things and that they should be forgiven if they show genuine remorse truly change their ways and use their experience to teach others. Let's hope Peters checks all those boxes. Well, here's the thing. I agree to a certain extent. I do tend to believe that maybe that contrition should last maybe more than the five months that it's been since he resigned from the flames. I also think that genuine remorse is a very debatable topic when it comes to Bill Peters, who never really acknowledged the damage he did to Akeem Alou, never really acknowledged the accusations that he did things behind the scenes to harm Alou's career. I mean, at one point said, I didn't actually say the N-word to anybody in particular because he was talking about, you know, the music. So while I agree with a lot of what Rob's saying here, the showing genuine remorse part is the part I'm struggling with, Emily, when it comes to celebrating the second chance of one Bill Peters. 
like I've said, I think we've got to wait and see. He can do his press conference where he can say the correct things that his agent and her lawyer told him to say. <laughs> um, but you need to see the body of work. All right. Some listener mail. Sarah wants to know, per aesthetics, a fourth Jersey program appears to be in the works. I've not heard about that. Do you like this idea? No. Any thoughts on what team, what teams would need a fourth? I think the, the, the bigger question here, Emily, for both of us, do you like third jerseys? Ooh, yeah. I love third jerseys. I love all the jerseys. One of the games that we watched um, for the viewers club, the Penguins were wearing a home white, and it just mm-hmm. felt so different and unique. It gave them a whole different feel. So I love when teams just kind of switch up their look like that. So yeah. Plus, it, it sells more merch, and we know the NHL needs money right now. Yeah, they should go to a ninth jersey at this point just to try to gin up some money. But um, mm-hmm. I got to be honest with you. I I do like third jerseys. I think some are better than others. I do like third jerseys that are a bit more out of the box than just simply variations on a theme. Um, I am, though, I've always been very happy in some ways that the Devils have resisted the siren song of a third jersey. Now, their their Christmas tree jersey, I don't consider it to be a third jersey. That's just one they take out oh, of mothballs so and wear once in a while. Um, so but silly. they could have stuck Satan's face on the front of a jersey and made it all black and made it real cool and heavy metal. And they they probably would have been able to pay, you know, Kovalchuk's contract with the money they made. Um, but they've always resisted because Lou Lamarillo, you know, back in the day, his whole thing was, let's be the Canadiens. And Montreal never had a third jersey, per se. They had some heritage jerseys here and there, but never had a third jersey. And so I've always appreciated the devil's slavish commitment to trying to be a traditional team and respect the the jersey that I think carries a lot of gravitas to it. Um, That said, you know, given the current circumstances, like I said, 10th jerseys, 11th jerseys, just sell them all. Um, Well, yeah, and who is this reader, and can we get her intel on this fourth jersey program? Yeah, I was checking the aesthetics Twitter feed and I didn't see anything about it, but I mean, mm-hmm. doesn't, they're, they're pretty tied in, so I'm, I'm assuming it's going to happen. Uh, Michael Palmer also wanted to know, what's been worse, covering a lockout or covering a pandemic? Now, I covered, I covered two lockouts and the first one, I was still at the newspaper, so I wasn't really like knocked out by it. Um, I did have a book deal pulled, which sucked. But then the other lockout, I was at Yahoo, and there's some similarities in, in the idea of like, you're, you're working every day to find some crumbs of information about what could happen. Um, but I think more than anything else, the difference is that it's not simply just like, hey, are you playing in Europe right now or whatever? It's like, hey, how are you handling this global pandemic? And so there's like a, a wealth of, of other reporting that can be done that you can't be done in a typical work stoppage, I think, would be the difference for me. This is my first pandemic and or lockout, and I'd like it to be my last. Amen. All right, let's go to puck headlines. Dateline, um, Dateline Winnipeg. The f- sad ordeal between the Winnipeg Jets and Dustin Bufflin has come to an end. They have terminated his contract, Emily. That they have, and this is a long time coming from when he didn't report to training camp in September to reportedly weighing retirement to the issue that was over his ankle and whether he needed surgery or not, even though he was cleared at the end of the year by their doctors and his end-of-year physical. 
Um, it's sad if this is the last we've seen of Big Buff because I know he still had it in him game-wise when he's healthy. He's incredible to watch. One of my favorite, favorite images of the 2018 playoffs is him dragging those two players from the Vegas Golden Knights out of the scrum like he was a bouncer at the club with one on either hand. Like, that was pure entertainment. He's such a joy to watch. It's Anyway, like I said, it's sad to see it end like this. Um, I'd be shocked if we see him play in another uniform, even though he is technically a UFA right now. Yeah, it does sound like uh, does sound like it might be the end of the road for Buff. And again, like, um, thinking back to, to 10 years ago and, and his impact for the Blackhawks as a force of nature in front of the net for that uh, championship team. Um, something awesome to think about. Uh, Dateline Columbus. Here's a story none of us knew was happening. Mikhail Grigorenko was signed by the Columbus Blue Jackets, and then the contract was rejected by the NHL because it violated terms of the collective bargaining agreement. Article 50.8 says no club or player may enter into a standard player's contract that does not cover at the then current league year. The foregoing does not apply to a contract entered into pursuant to section. Here's what you got to know. There's a whole thing in the CBA that says the contract he signed is no good. And then the NHL said the contract is no good. And then Columbus and Grigorenko are just going to have to wait until free agency starts to actually sign this contract. But it was a big surprise, like a total name of the past from the Buffalo Sabres, uh, spent the last three years playing in Russia. And, and, uh, as soon as his contract was up, the, the Blue Jackets have been looking at him for a couple of years and said, here, come on, come, come join the team. What I find interesting is there does feel like there's a big rush of players from the KHL who are coming to North America. When I went over there, Kirill Kaprizov is going to sign with the Minnesota Wild. I, I think it's just a matter of inevitability at this point. Ilya Sorokin is allegedly going to sign with the uh, New York Islanders. And they were expected, but there's a couple guys that are unexpected like him. And I, I wonder if, you know, what's taking a huge hit right now? Oil. What fuels the KHL? Oil. Uh, maybe the finances are drying up there a little bit and they realize uh, they can get paid over here and it's better money. Mm. Interesting. Uh, Dateline, the Devils. Our friend Pierre Lebrun of The Athletic reports that the Devils have interviewed Gerard Gallant for their head coaching position, currently owned by Elaine Nezredine on an interim basis. Uh, Nezredine's going to be in the mix for this. They, they like him. Um, I don't know how much they like him. But, uh, you know, Glant's going to be a name that's in, in some demand. We've talked about on the show before how the Dallas Stars might be in the Gerard Glant business, uh, if in fact, uh, they decide to, to, to bring him in because he's got this relationship with Jim Nill and Rick Bonus probably isn't going to be back. Uh, Minnesota is another possibility. Uh, Billy Garen played for Glant when Glant was an assistant coach with the Islanders. As you know, the entire league is built on nepotism and relationships. So these are the, uh, the things that were drawn. And he- heck, if we're doing that, Detroit, where Glant spent many, many years and was a former teammate of Steve Eiserman should probably also be mentioned as well. Um, but interesting move for the Devs if it ends up being Glant. I mean, that's a, that's a team that's in a clear rebuild. I think he probably has other opportunities to, um, get closer to winning a cup than are the Devils, but, uh, but doing their due diligence during the, uh, the lockout, the lockdown. Gerard Gallant is the first coach to get fired on a tarmac and hired via Zoom. <laughs> That's right. We should mention uh, that Zoom was where the uh, we assume it was Zoom uh, as how the Devils are doing some of these interviews with coaches they're looking at. Uh, Dateline TJ Oshie's house. Speaking of Zoom, 
the Capitals forward's call with reporters was interrupted by his adorable daughters a few times, including one time in which his daughter had to run over and tell her dad the red colored pencil is for blood. Okay, you mentioned daughter, but I think anyone who knows the Oshi family, and I've admitted to TJ Oshi that I stalk his wife a lot on Instagram because I'm obsessed with his family. It was Lenny. And if you don't know Lenny Oshi, you just need to Google her because she's the most amazing cherubic child you'll ever see. So that's all I got to say. <laughs> um, it's, it was a fantastic call. Uh, finally, Dateline, uh, pause viewer's guide. As you know, every Tuesday, um, Emily and I are looking back at a hockey thing. We're watching it and we're breaking it down on ESPN.com. Uh, last week was an awesome 30 for 30 on John Spano. This week, it was a, another sort of hockey doc thing. The quest for the cup. I'm sorry. The quest for the Stanley Cup, full title, on ESPN Plus. Um, it's a documentary series. It's been on for a long time. It was 24-7 on HBO. It's been the Quest for the Cup on other networks. It was Quest for the Cup on our network. Our network. And it was the Bruins and Blues games 5 through 7 were covered in that episode. And I had never seen it before. Had you seen it before? I don't think so. I think yeah. at this point when it was released, I was so conked out on content. I was like, I'm good. I don't need to see any more of this. <laughs> What did you think looking back at it? I'll, I'll say I'll, I'll, the one thing that stuck out for me was the Patrice Bergeron stuff. Like, I know he's well-respected. I know he plays the game right. I know young players look up to him and be like, if I'm going to be a star two-way center in this league, I better play like Patrice Bergeron. Dude was like Vince Lombardi behind the scenes, man, giving these inspirational speeches to the Bruins. I never, I never realized he was that guy behind closed doors. Yeah, that was awesome. You know, the coolest parts of these, are the little glimpses, the little moments that you get in the locker room. You get snippets of, of things that are said on the ice. Everyone's mic'd up. Um, that was one of the coolest. And then the creativity and the F-bombs. There were so many <laughs> F-bombs, and that was a great category we came up with, which F-bomb was the most creatively used. And you'll have to check out our story on ESPN.com to see what we picked. Yeah, it's brilliant stuff. All right, everybody. That's the show for this week. Boy, was it a good one. Thanks to Brendan Dillon of the Capitals. Thanks to Marissa and Jemmy. Uh, you can follow, obviously, all of her writing on, uh, on the Twitter machine. And, uh, thanks to all of you for listening. Um, you know, do check out our work at ESPN.com. We're turning out things every single day for you. Monday is the day for the big roundup of COVID-19 news with, uh, when it comes to the NHL restarts, quarantines, all that jive. If you've been somebody who's been dabbling in, in, in sports news here and there, um, because you're dealing with other stuff, it's a good way for you to catch up on everything that's going on. Um, and then also, uh, for me, check out Puck Soup, my other podcast. It says the naughty words. Oh, and you can just follow me on Twitter at Emily M. Kaplan. Thanks so much for listening. Bye. 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 This has been ESPN on Ice with Wyshynski and Kaplan. Subscribe to the show in the ESPN app or Apple Podcasts.